This is the On The Touchline Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. You guys hear me talk about this all the time, and I absolutely love their product, so I want you to know about Duke Tig Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. If you need a notebook that is already pre-lined, that you can just jump right in, plan a training session, take notes during a match, Duke Tig Brand has got you covered. And guess what? They also have waterproof products. And if you work in the coaching world, you know how unpredictable the weather can be from week to week, match to match, training session to training session. They also have apparel too. So I can save you 10% today by going to checkout at duketigbrand.com and use the promo code BROADWATER19, B-R-O-A-D-W-A-T-E-R-1-9 at checkout. duketigbrand.com, plan to be great. So imagine for a moment that you had to explain the operating structure of U.S. soccer and the number of different leagues that we have in this country. Could you do it? And I asked that question because I don't know if I could do it in a way that would be simplistic and easy to understand for someone trying to gain a better understanding of our quote-unquote soccer pyramid. So imagine trying to explain that to someone here in the States and then explaining it to someone who has, you know, come to the States uh, for whatever reason. It's incredibly complex. It's incredibly convoluted. It's incredibly frustrating, uh, I think is a great word to describe it. And if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know that I've had guests on and tweet about this on a regular basis of promotion and relegation, an open system, an actual living and breathing U.S. Soccer Federation that gives a damn about people like me and you. Uh, Let's face it, they don't. In season three, episode four, Aaron Rodgers and I talked to Brandon Ponchok. He is the general manager and goalkeeping coach for the Cincinnati Dutch Lions in Cincinnati, Ohio. So most people would probably say that we have Major League Soccer, MLS, the USL Championship, the USL League One, and then the National Independent Soccer Association, NISA. So they probably could give you maybe three out of the four, maybe two out of the four, if they're telling just a casual fan or a person about the structure uh, of U.S. soccer. Now, mind you, teams can't move up and down. Um, I guess they can if they pay a boatload of money, but that's a story for another day. So more on that for another podcast. The Cincinnati Dutch Lions play in the USL 2. USL 2, formerly the Premier Development League, the PDL, is a development soccer league sponsored by United Soccer Leagues in the U.S. and Canada. The league has 72 competing teams in four different conferences split into 11 
regional divisions. Unofficially, it's considered the fourth tier of competition behind MLS, the USL Championship, and USL League One. So we talk quite a bit about player pathways on this show. And yes, people are familiar with those three big ones that I mentioned um, as a possible you know, destination of playing first team or first division soccer here in the U.S. But Brandon talks a little bit about the players that they've developed at the Cincinnati Dutch Lions and how some of those players have gone on to play in Europe and other places. And so it gives players another pathway to get into a first team at perhaps a higher division. And he shares a great story, uh, one of his players in this particular podcast. And all the different things that go into um, functioning as a USL2 um, franchise. You will hear more from Brandon in just a moment. A quick reminder, you can find this podcast on all major podcasting platforms. And if you like the show, uh, please be sure that you subscribe. That way you never miss new episodes that are available uh, most Wednesdays and Saturdays. And also, too, um, thank you so much for the love and the follows on social media. You can connect with me at any time at SoccerCoachJB on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to give Aaron uh, Rogers a follow, he is at Ohio Soccer Coach. All right, guys, I think you're going to really like this episode. Please enjoy Season 3, Episode 4 in our conversation with Brandon Ponchok of the Cincinnati Dutch Lions. For the folks listening to this that have never heard your name before, uh, tell them who you are and where you reside and a little bit about your background. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. I, I love talking. Uh, Aaron knows that a little bit. Uh, but uh, I'm Brandon Ponchak. I'm the general manager and I'm assistant coach with the Cincinnati Dutch Lions uh, USL2 team. Uh, we're located in greater Cincinnati. We've had a few seasons that we played in Cincinnati the last three years and soon to be fourth year. Uh, we play at Northern Kentucky University in Highland Heights. Kentucky. Uh, my wife and I, we have three kids. We reside in Northern Kentucky and uh, I do a lot of coaching around. I work with Ohio Elite uh, Soccer Academy. I'm the director of goalkeeping there. Um, I also own my own goalkeeper glove franchise, uh, S1 Goalkeeping. It's, uh, I was going to say you've done a little bit of everything. Um, I'm interested. So we're, we're probably going to jump around a little bit in this podcast because I was reading, um, you know, uh, some of the stuff you'd written. This is a couple years old at this point, but about solidarity, solidarity payments and promotion relegation and sort of the, the state of uh, U.S. soccer. But um, tell folks a little bit about the Cincinnati Dutch Lions and some exciting news that came out recently, right? You guys play in the USL too, but you're also now playing in the OVPL and what that yeah. actually is. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Cincinnati Dutch Lions was established in 2013. At the time, the Dayton Dutch Lions were USL Pro, and we started as their amateur affiliate, uh, a way to scout some players during the summer, college players or, or wherever they might come from. 
and hopefully feed them into the Dayton Dutch Lions and the pro realm after the season or even the next year. Um, one thing led to another. Dayton is no longer pro, and we still operate amateur. So that uh, 2020 will be our sixth season in operation. Uh, it's uh, over the last four years. Well, this will be season four. Uh, I've been here. I got hired in March of 2017 under new ownership, uh, and we've turned kind of just flipped it upside down in how we operate. Uh, extremely professional. Uh, some some say we have a better setup here than many pro teams do. Uh, I know our ownership's extremely in, invested in our club, but also the development of players and the opportunities that they want to give to players. Uh, they want to move them on however we can move them on, but we also want to win. Uh, over the last two seasons, in 2018 and 2019, we, uh, we realized that we, we could do more in the Cincinnati area. Uh, and that was to provide more opportunities for players. So we started a, a training group that we hoped to add some competitions wherever we could. But the downside was is we just never could find enough competition. So that led to us exploring with other groups. Um, the Indy Saints was the primary driver behind that as well because they were in a league uh, that folded in 2017. After that season, they had no men's team, no, no league for the men's team to play in. So they started a WPSL team, which they've been competing WPSL since. And that led to the formation of the Ohio Valley Premier League, the OVPL. And we have three teams that we've announced, uh, Cincinnati Dutch Lions, Indy Saints, and Lexington Landsharks. And there are more on, on tap. There's just uh, a few loose ends to, to kind of iron out there for that. You said something there that was interesting to me in terms of, you know, perhaps being maybe a little bit more professional than, um, you know, maybe some of the, the MLS clubs or, you know, pro teams um, that we have here in the States. And I guess I'm wondering what that actually means. Um, you mentioned the ownership group that, you know, heavily invested in really in, you know, they're all in, so to speak, in terms of what you're trying to do. What, what's that look like? Uh, describe that for, um, for the audience. Yeah, I honestly, I, I won't be, I, and I can't speak to how some USL teams or MLS teams operate. I just know from what our guys have said. Um, I know some USL teams don't give a per diem sometimes. Uh, and we go out and the guys get fed all the time. Wherever we go, they're going to have food. Um, when they're here with us, Monday through Friday, they get lunch provided to them. Um, they get a, a stipend, weekly stipend that covers food. Uh, everything's 100% NCAA legal. Uh, there's no issues with it. And I know I, I'm on top of the NCAA rules and regulations probably more than some compliance officers are because I just want to make sure that our guys are going to be compliant with everything. And, uh, you know, they, they have apartments that they stay in that are basically brand new. Uh, we, they're fully furnished. They get Wi-Fi. They travel in a bus. Um, we've had some players play overseas and they go out and they have to, they're fed on a, on an away game. Um, they're fed, they stop at a convenience store basically, and they have to go and get their own sandwiches. Uh, for us, no, we want to make sure that everybody's healthy and fed, right? So we'll, we'll iron out and map out wherever we need to go to make sure they get the, the 
proper nutrition and really sometimes what the players want, maybe not necessarily what we want uh, for them or what we think, you know, pregame meals for players and how they want to prep is, is a lot different. You know, some people want chicken and rice and other people want some pasta uh, with some sauces or whatever it might be. Some people want Panera, but we'll sort it out and we'll make sure everybody's taken care of. Um, we got a gym that we work with LA fitness and Florence is amazing. Uh, they've been our home gym for, for three seasons now, and this will be season four coming up. Um, they have everything there that they could ask for. And it's a hop, skip, and a jump away from where the guys stay. So, and, and Northern Kentucky University, they, they treat us excellent. Um, we got a locker room that's basically ours through the summer. Uh, opponents have a, a nice locker room as well. Uh, we have athletic training provided to us with uh, St. Elizabeth, uh, which is the largest employer in Northern Kentucky. And they've been amazing. Um, ice baths, you know, kind of whatever we want. And then we also have cryotherapy and some other wellness uh, stuff provided to them. Nano V, Normatech provided to them by uh, cryo, uh, cryo place in, in Anderson Township, Ohio. Well. Aaron, go ahead. So, how do you how do you guys go about recruiting the players? Is it is do you have a kind of a director of player personnel or, uh, I mean, obviously general manager? That's one of the titles you hold, right? Yeah, that's that's one of the few. Yeah. So so how does that work? How how do how do how do you find the players? Because obviously, if I'm a college player and I hear what what uh, amenities and and uh, benefits you guys have, I want to play for you all. And that's what we want. I mean, we know that we have a great setup. And um, our head coach, Paul Nicholson, played for uh, Wilmington Hammerheads in USL. He played for FC Cincinnati. He was one of the first 11 players that FC Cincinnati signed. He played there for three years. Um, his connections are amazing. His network is amazing. I let Paul take care of a lot of it because he's the head coach. Uh, I want to make sure that he has the guys that he trusts and he wants in and his network. And uh, he, he, we watch him play. I mean, that's one of the number one things we try to do. We want either video or we want to watch him play in person. Um, and that's – I put a lot of miles on in the last uh, three seasons recruiting and, and scouting opposition wherever I can. Um, and then watching I'm, – I'm so thankful for ESPN Plus these days because it's – I mean, almost every game is on there and we can go back and watch things again as well. Um, so Paul and I, I mean – we're, we're the two on staff that really do tons of recruiting. We have some networks uh, in, in the Netherlands, of course, uh, being the Dutch Lions, that do help us with some, some Dutch players. That's where, you know, our, our maybe one of my favorites, because he was a goalkeeper, but Zeus de la Paz, he came through our Dutch system and our Dutch network, and now he's playing Oldham Athletic and England Leap One. Uh, so When did he play? Because I saw, I saw all of your, your tweets about – about uh, Zeus and I saw and I was wondering how that connection was so he played for for the Cincinnati Dutch Lions yeah he played for us in 2017 which was my first year here um Sid Van Drunen who's now the assistant at Wright State uh recruited and, and scouted Zeus in the Netherlands and uh brought him over that year and it was I mean he was excellent I mean it was just his voice just a booming presence I, I don't know how he was without a contract. And I told him that after the end of the season, I said, he's got a, he, he's the best goalkeeper I've ever coached straight up. He so, so he obviously has to have a booming voice with his name. 
when right. it was Zeus. And that, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was on that, that year. Uh, so we had him in 17. He signed. He was basically with Oldham all fall after we had him. Um, unfortunately, that year, England passed a law or, you know, signing players kind of guidelines that if you were an amateur player, you couldn't be signed immediately if you were a free agent. You had to wait until the transfer went. Hmm. so unfortunately they they wanted him that fall but he had to wait until the january transfer window to sign with him um and then that spring he was in some best name in european soccer contest and i think he made it to the second round he actually lost to one of his teammates at Oldham, <laughs> who was what Poseidon? Jesus might be the only one that could beat him, right? I don't know. <laughs> but what, what, kind of, what kind of goalkeeper gloves does he wear? S1 goalkeeping. There you go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He actually turned me on to the gloves. Um, he, he wore some different – I mean, I think he had a pair of swoosh, <clears throat> swoosh gloves yeah. that uh, – when he was here with us, and then he, when he signed with Odom, he ended up signing with S1. I've been looking for a quality glove and a affordable glove, and uh, he wears me. He, he, he said nothing but positive things about him. So we, he turned me on to him, and we got in contact, and there it was. It was a match made in heaven, I guess. And uh, S1's been, been here for us ever since, and then I actually start April this year is when I started with S1. There you go. So now we can have a, a a product testing podcast where we test out the S one. Absolutely, yeah. Well, they're great gloves. I mean, and for forty dollars, uh, that's a retail value. I mean, I wow, you can't beat them. I mean, yeah. you can't beat them. This isn't the uh, the first time that three goalkeepers have been on this podcast at the same time, and um, you know, it's like how many goalkeepers does it take to change a light bulb? So. <laughs> We're just good at stopping shots. I don't know if we're good at anything else. And even that I wasn't very good at. So <laughs> at least our hands will be protected. There you That's go. Right. That's right. That's right. So um there's something in the name Cincinnati Dutch Lions that um obviously stands out to me, Brandon, that you know is is a little different maybe than some other clubs out there. And it's the word Dutch. And um, you know, I've been been sharing a lot of what IAX does and um you know, I, I've always appreciated what goes on in uh, in the Netherlands, but I think it maybe it's just been that I found it more easily, or it's been more in my face this year, or whatever. But you know, every every weekend that there is an international break, I mean, I'm watching something from you know the the Dutch first league, um, you know, first division football, um, and I and I think it's actually really great football to watch. So I'm wondering if that translates into style of play or kind of how you go about training players uh, at your club? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's one of our main focuses and it's, it's our identity and what we want to play. We build out of the back. Uh, we want to be creative. We want to attack. We want to defend really hard. Um, that's one of the things, even with Sid, when Sid came in here in year one and Sid's Dutch uh, and then he left for the right state job because uh, it was a little closer to home. He still lived in Dayton. And then Paul retired, and it was kind of just a – I mean, it, it was a perfect storm, really, to, uh, to bring in Paul right after that, basically. And uh, that's Paul's identity as well. I mean, he's even though he's English, uh, he, he, he wants to defend hard, and he wants to attack very creative. He wants to keep a ball. Um, 
that that's how we do it. And from 2017, 2018, 2019, we, we have the top three uh, goals, a goals against averages in the club's history. I mean, it's only five, six years now. Um, th that's what we want to do. I mean, that's, that's how we, we know if we don't give up goals, then it gives us a chance to win. Um, and then we, we create goals. Uh, it's just up to us to be able to finish them then. So some people listening to this, um, obviously there's a, a lot of folks that believe in, you know, possession-based soccer and, you know, keeping the ball obviously more than the opponent. And um, I mentioned in the, the last podcast that even watching Aaron's Ohio women's team, um, that they play really attractive uh, football. And, um, you know, I I've never seen the, the Cincinnati Dutch Lions play, but I mean, they're, they're on my list to watch uh, in the upcoming season for sure. Um, but I, I'm wondering if that is almost 180 degrees different than what goes on here in the U.S. in many cases. And, and I say this, um, you know, uh, from some of the high school kids I've worked with all the way down to, you know, the U10 players that I'm going to train tomorrow night, um, that there's this, you know, mentality that comes from... I'm not sure where it comes from. It probably comes from a few different places. But this idea that, you know, a, a football is really like a hot potato or a ticking time bomb that a kid has to get rid of it. And I certainly don't believe that. I don't think you guys believe that. I think a lot of the, the listening audience probably doesn't believe that. And I'm just wondering that, you know, there, there has to be a certain type of player or, or person that kind of buys into what you're doing. Because if they're brought up in this sort of very traditional American, you know, bigger, faster, stronger environment that, you know, what you're trying to do is probably 180 degrees opposite of that. Oh, there's there, no doubt in my mind. It's, it, I mean, even recruiting college games, I think I've been to probably close to just personally been to 80 college games over the last two seasons, very or high school and college, I guess I should say. Um, it's very rare to really see people and teams want to focus on possession um, and to calm a ball down and to not go forward. I mean, I can't count the, the amount of times that a ball has been played back to a goalkeeper even. Uh, that's so rare. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, I went to a Ohio high school state championship games and out of uh, three boys games, I saw the intentionally – get passed back to a goalkeeper one time in three games. Hmm. Why do you think that is? What, number one, I think probably goalkeepers aren't skilled enough uh, with a ball. Um, that, that will shy coaches away from it. But I also think it's just, it's just not something they truly believe in. They want to just attack, attack, attack. Or they just want to get the ball forward and maybe try to win the ball back farther up the field. Um, they, they feel like hey, let's limit our, our errors in the back and maybe with our goalkeeper. Um, and that means don't play back to him or her. I mean, because it's the same. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, when you, when you look at the importance of results, especially in the, in the college game and, and and I guess at that level of the high school game, you know, you're there. You you're trying to eliminate that margin for error. And if you know when you play that style, when you play where you try to go backwards instead of forwards, and especially when you're going to your last line, 
you know, that, that margin for error is, is, is very, very thin. And, you know, and I think people just aren't, aren't interested in dealing with that. And, and it's difficult. I think, you know, one of the questions that I had, and I think it's, it's also very appropriate to the college game, which, which, you know, obviously you've had experience in that as well is, you know, the amount of time that you have to, to develop and create a, uh, your style in, in the college game and even in your game um, at the, at the uh, USL2 level is so short. You don't have much time. And so the easiest way to push for those results is put it in the other team's half immediately, press them or, and allow them to make the mistake and then, you know, go to goal. Uh, and so, I mean, you find the similarities there from, from the college game to the USL two level because of the timing of the amount of time that you can develop that. Yeah. Um, one of the things I've always thought interesting is to see the differences in how international players are with American players when it comes to uh, even just technical passing exercises, you know, just, um, it could be a, a box, you know, a, the, the Dutch square or a wide passing or whatever it is. Uh, our international goalkeepers, they want involved in those. If you ask American goalkeeper to get in there, you know, even coaches will be like, no, we don't want them in there. You know, mm-hmm. go over and, you know, do some volleys, kick, get ready. We'll use you in 30 minutes. Um, no, I mean, we, we incorporate our goalkeepers in every technical passing thing that we can, unless it's one, hey, let's, get them warmed up because we're after this, we're going to go straight to goal or whatever it's going to be. We need them ready. Um, that to me, that's extreme. I mean, it's not going to be ask. It's not asking much to say, Hey, 10, 15 minutes of a, a passing exercise and goalkeepers are going to get better. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously this is kind of going off on a different tangent, but because we're all goalkeeper people here. I mean, I think that's one of the things training my goalkeepers is every training session. If it's involving, the the full team or if it's just the goalkeepers to, to, together uh, alone is is there's some type of technical aspect with your feet uh, distribution short medium long range passing um, because it's so vital and and those are things that that those players those goalkeepers have to really embrace that in order to play the way that we want to play because we need that goalkeeper to set play we need that goalkeeper to be able to change the point of attack we need that goalkeeper to be able to have a a varying range of passing just like you would expect your center back to have because basically they're they're the deepest center back and I think that's that's so important um to do but you're exactly right I mean they need to be involved in the technical aspects, if not with the outfield team, but with in their goalkeeper session itself. I mean, there's so many easy ways to incorporate, even with handling activities, with with some technical work with with the ball, with their feet. Um, and and I think that's just something that I've evolved into over the last ten years as a goalkeeper coach as well. Yeah, one of the first things we do uh, pregame for our goalkeepers is we play out of the back with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't even warm up their hands first. They warm up their feet. They want to play balls wide and, and at varying distances um, on the floor. Boom. Can we knock some in the air? Um, it's important. I mean, it, it sets a tone right there that they're going to strike balls. They're going to continue to hit balls. They're going to get that confidence with their feet. And then we're going to go to their hands. We don't exactly ask them to be like, Allison from Liverpool and Cruyff people in the box or <laughs> dink it over their the, the uh, 
on rushing forward, but uh, that's a little bit nerve wracking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, going back to the, what you said about the, the distances and short, medium and, and longer. I mean, even just over the last two weeks, been able, been at some tryouts, being at some training sessions with different groups, talking to a couple of goalkeeper coaches. It was amazing to hear that, such an emphasis of building out of the back that a lot of times goalkeepers aren't even looking at the next level they're not like they say hey we need to we need to especially in club now you can play inside the box so they they immediately set the ball down they play to a center back that's in the box instead of saying hey why can't I find my six who might be breaking lines or an outside midfielder who might be breaking lines. They don't even look for that if even if they might be open. Because yeah. they're so they're so wired to say, hey, we gotta play out of the back now. Well, I mean I think listen, because people say that and people think, okay, I gotta play short, because that's what playing out of the back is, well, guess what? A smart team is gonna press you high up the field. And so they're gonna sit their three if they're playing a four, three, three, whatever they're playing, they're gonna sit their three forwards up on your players and so you're going to be immediately pressed so why not be able to play a 30 yard ball to the wide area to your fullback who's high up the field because then we can start playing from that moment because we're breaking that initial press and dependent upon how the 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 opposing team is setting up to defend in those moments i mean that's a huge ball to be able to play and and i think that's important um in in obviously not only developing your goalkeeper but also setting up your team to break those those lines of of pressure that are coming if you want to play out of the back because as soon as you do that and you start hitting that two three times guess what they're going to drop off and now you play short again bring them out play in whatever you know building yeah building through, building through the lines yeah absolutely and it, it's it's come to a point where the opponents are pressed so high that they know it's going to be passed short. So they, they allow the pass to short, and then they might drop the ball back to the goalkeeper or another center back, and that ball just gets knocked long anyway. Mm-hmm. It, without yeah. even you know looking at the, those next-level passes or, or breaking lines. So it, it just ends up being a long 50-50 ball anyway. Mm-hmm. Brandon, what you just described is um, – I put this tweet out. It was late Sunday night uh, this past week. I was watching um, some of the women's NCAA tournament. I'm not going to name the teams, um, but that's exactly what happened numerous times. And, it, you know, <laughs> I put out something to the effect of, like, you know, that's not what playing out of the back looks like. <laughs> Just because you pass it to, uh, you know, uh, when you're outside backs or your center back and they play it back to the keeper who smashes it forward, you know, 50 or 60 yards, not exactly what we had in mind there. And um, I mean, Aaron, everything you said, you know, is, is completely spot on. I think it, it just speaks to the unpredictability that a team can be and just how multidimensional a team can be right? Because, you know, if they're playing short, playing short, playing short, team presses high, then okay, then we got to change, we got to adapt. But having just even a little bit of a soccer IQ to recognize it, you know, I saw this with the, the team that I was coaching in the fall, their inability to recognize when something changed. They were good at that initial, you know, assessment of the situation, and they knew what to do in that initial assessment. Okay, any opponent is going to change. They're going to adapt. They're going to, you know, sort of take on the shape of water depending on what's going on. So you have to be able to 
you know, counterpunch to their punch. Um, in that, you know, we struggled with that at different times um, with my high school group because they couldn't, you know, that second or third read just wasn't there for them at times. And, and that comes with experience, you know, that comes with the repetition of just doing it over and over again. And, you know, to, to what you said before about just the limited amount of time in, in high school or college you have with a team, you know, it's how many things can you cover in one day and they're actually going to retain, <laughs> you know, any of it for that matter. So, um, going a, a slightly different direction here, Brandon. So obviously, you know, coaching, um, but also being a guy who brings in a coach, um, or has a say in, you know, selecting a coach, what, what makes a good coach in your mind from your own experience or what you've seen from, you know, people that you've worked with? Ooh, loaded one there. Yeah. That's, um, I think every program, uh, whether it's university club, high school, um, USL2, they all want their own identity. And whatever that identity is, it's got to match. I mean, the coach has to match that identity. Um, and that's what we wanted here when we were hiring uh, for our head coach. Um, when I got hired, I was a, a head coach at an AI school in, in Kansas, Sterling College. Um, they wanted an identity. And it was about for me, when I got hired, it was about creating identity for that team. It was discipline um, in the classroom, on the field, continuity. When I got hired, I was, I think, the third or fourth coach in three or four years. Hmm. Um, I mean, the previous two coaches stayed two seasons each, and I, I was brought in to bring them some uh, continuity. Um, I was the first coach in probably, I think it was like six years or more, that actually saw a, a freshman class graduate. Um, and that was one of my own goals myself. I wanted to make sure that those players, you know, had continuity. They had an identity. They could trust the coach because it, previously, and, and it, it happens, you know, not everybody's going to stay for four years or, or whatever they, they might commit to initially. Things change. Um, uh, plans change. Uh, so, uh, for here, when we were hiring, we wanted to make sure that the coach is going to say, hey, we want to play this way. This is what we want to do off the field. We we want to bring in certain players from certain areas, or we want to make sure we have a good network. Um, what are you going to bring to the table that really matches what we already have in place? Um, and our ownership's extremely successful business people, and they were able to, to grill a little bit and to make sure that you know, we're going to bring in the right people. Uh, I think I was a bit of a gamble myself when, when they hired me because I was just a college coach and I'd never been in this USL2 setting before. And now they're ta I'm tasked to, to run a club. Um, and that I just I think it's just, hey, what can I, how can I sell myself to say I'm the right guy for the job? And that was kind of what it was for Paul. And it was pretty easy for Paul. I mean, it, he's, it's not like he was inexperienced. So he had an identity of how he wanted to coach. He had a couple of years of college coaching experience. He's a club coach. Um, he's just an all-around footballer, really. I had a, uh, a recent coaching colleague say to me that, you know, he appreciated sort of the, I don't know, I guess I would call it stoic nature that I can have at times, um, you know, uh, coaching, but also, I, I mean, I can get incredibly animated um, in training sessions and depending on the topic or whatever, I can get, 
you know, pretty jazzed uh, about it pretty quickly. So I kind of have this weird sort of yin and yang thing going on. Um, and, I, and, and a lot of it really depends on the group too, right? If it's a younger group and, you know, kids in elementary school, you know, there's an element of fun and being a little silly and whatever, but we're still trying to accomplish something. My wife says to me, she goes, you're, you're truly at your best when you're with, you know, older players because, you know, that's, I guess, why you have a podcast is because I can't shut the hell up sometimes. But, um, <laughs> and she's told me that over 12 years of marriage. So God bless her. But, uh, what do you like at a training session or what do you like on match day? Um, you know, when you're sort of more hands-on or when you're, you know, working with goalkeepers or, or whatever, um, describe your demeanor. Um, I've, I've toned it down a lot, I'd say, from my first few years in coaching. Um, I'm, I'm extremely passionate about the game. And, you know, for me, I felt like my passion was always sort of a positive thing, even though I, I was kind of a yeller at times. Um, but I, I, I kind of shifted that. I, I try to stay away from referees as much as possible because that can negatively impact players and their reactions. Um, I, most of the time, I'm pretty easy going with it these days. Uh, encouraging. I'm, I feel like I'm always encouraging players. I definitely want to do that. Uh, try to catch some things before mistakes are happen um, instead of saying, hey, you know, don't play that ball. Uh, I mean, obviously, if it's a, if you turn the ball over, I don't want to play that ball. However, it might have been played. Or, you know, hey, it, it was uh, it was a savable ball. I'm not going to say, hey, you got to make that save because a goalkeeper, our goalkeepers are going to know that they're going to make, they want to make those saves. Uh, they're not dumb, um, and they know that they they have a high standard for themselves because they want to go pro. Um, so it's pretty easy going. I mean. Uh, we have a fun time. We have a very, very fun staff. Uh, Paul's great to work with. Um, we have two other assistants, uh, uh, Terry Nickel and Jack Hermans, who are absolute legends in Cincinnati soccer. Uh, Terry and Jack both have been coaching probably, in, I mean, 30-plus years maybe in Cincinnati. So if somebody grew up in Cincinnati and played soccer at any age, they probably ran across Terry or Jack at some point. Um, and we just, we have an absolute ball because they're just, they're all just great. Everybody has stories. Uh, Terry and Jack's stories are incredible. Uh, I mean, Terry came over, he was at Sheffield United, I mean, wherever he was at in England, all kinds of places. He came over for indoor soccer, um, in the, in the eighties and the stories from indoor soccer days are incredible. Um, you know, Jack had his, his Dutch, Jack Herman's his Dutch. And uh, he, he has some Dutch stories, and he used to coach at Xavier in the 90s, so he has Xavier stories. Um, it's all great. And, of course, all of us coach do some youth training as well, so we have youth stories that we can talk about for, for days as well. So it's, it's very lighthearted, uh, but when it's business, it's business, and the players know that. Um, we, we want serious training uh, because they want to make it to the next level, and especially with Paul. And he, he provides that because he's been there. Um, I mean, Jack and Terry have been as well, but their, their pro days are uh, a few years ago. <laughs> How do you when, you, when you think of your coaching staff then and you think of the players that, that are there, how do you what, – what's the man management like? I mean, you know, you, those players want to go pro. Those players – 
um, they they want to win. I'm I'm assuming. Um, but what's the man management like? How how is it to also? But they're also players in 2019 that that need to be cared for emotionally, psychologically. How, how does that work with you all? Yeah. So the the first thing that we know is they're people, um, and we we treat everybody like like a person. Um, we have we have relationships with them. We talk to them uh, off the field. We talk about their lives, what's going on. I mean, these players have all kinds of things that go on. Um, you know, some of them have never been to Cincinnati. So it's an adjustment period for them as well. Um, some of them haven't seen their mom or dad or families or girlfriends for months. You know, so we have to deal with that as well. So we want to make sure that that they know we care about them. And we'll talk with them. We'll, we'll always shake hands. I mean, every day it's a handshake, uh, a hug, whatever it might be, whatever the player might want. Uh, but greeting them with a smile, enjoying their presence uh, as soon as they get in. Uh, the first half hour or so, they're just hanging out in the changing room um, or in, in the athletic training room, getting treatment and just enjoying the company of each other. Um, and then when it comes to the playing time and the training stuff, it it, it is challenging at times because we, we carry about an average to maybe a slightly below average roster for USL2. Um, we have around 35 guys on average. Uh, I think this year we got up to 38. Um, it's a lot. But at the same time, we know that guys have things going on. So they may have a, a wedding to go to, or they may have vacation planned in the middle of the season. Um, this year, more than any, we, we had guys go off to pro camps, uh, whether it's USL or MLS camps, to, to spend some time. Those are important things, and guys have to understand that they have to buy their time and earn their training, earning their training spots and earning their, their starting spots, earning the dressing 18, um, and they'll get chances. And uh, some of them aren't really pleased at times with those, but they also got to understand we have to manage their health as well. Um, because they have a most of them have a fall career that they're going to go back and join their university. We want to make sure that the colleges and, and universities and the programs are getting them at their best and they're and they're healthy. Um, so while everybody wants to play because they're players and they have a, a high competitive mentality, it, it's it's not healthy for them to play our season and then a full R season and then jump straight into a, a fall season. Uh, so we want to make sure that they understand, Hey, we're going to rotate you because it's what's best for you. Um, and it's what's best for your, your own coach and, and our relationships with the programs that we get players from. Um, in the end, it, it comes down to, they understand, they, they have to understand that we care about them. And, and that's the number one reason why we're making those decisions. So it's interesting because I think you, you're obviously a good segue between the college game and the, per, and the full professional game because you operate as a professional organization, but obviously you're still amateur, and, but you still have the, the kind of um, the demands of a, a professional team. And I think that's such something that's so fascinating to me because I've never coached professionally that – that man management and I mean obviously I'm a Liverpool supporter so I just see Klopp and I just see how how it seems like he's endeared to all the players um 
but it is a it is a zero sum game with with professionals. You have to win, and it doesn't matter how much the player likes you if they're not winning. And I think that's that's such a balance to create, especially at the professional level, is to be able to create that connection, create that that um, that relationship, but also I think in the end positively can drive a performance. And I think ultimately that's, that's what we're all trying to do is with our, I mean, honestly, we want to honestly have, be able to have that relationship, but we want that positivity to drive a performance. And I think um, that's, that's probably what, what you've got going on from uh, at the level that you guys are at um, being kind of that intermediary between the college game and the full professional game. Yeah. Now, you know, ideally in a perfect world, yeah, it would be amazing just to carry, you know, 25, 28 guys. Uh, but we know that's not realistic at our level because some guys, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have to take summer classes potentially just to, to ease up on a fall or spring semester to graduate when they want to graduate. So we know we're going to lose some. And that just, uh, you know, basically forces our hand a bit and carrying a bit of a larger roster. Hey, guys, guys are going to get called back early because they have captain's practices or camps to run at the university. But we got to carry some other guys or bring some other guys in later, knowing that some guys will leave early. And, and that's what we, we, we do that. We manage guys that way as well. So Brandon, you said something that um, I think is going to tie in probably to, uh, you know, some of the stuff that you've written about, about solidarity payments and, you know, promotion relegation and, um, you know, players moving on. And so sporting merit is something that um, a lot of us in the footballing world, you know, really believe in. And, you know, uh, the example you gave of uh, if you're carrying 35 guys or, or gals on a roster and that they have to come in and they have to earn their place, right? And they have to compete and they have to battle and they have to, you know, work as hard as they possibly can to get into the 18 and then when they get in the 18 then to get into the 11 and just to this constant that it has to be about merit has to be about performance and that um you know ultimately that if a player moves on to something bigger and better that some sort of compensation should come back to that development you know foundation that they had and so um you know, I, I don't know how familiar the listening audience is with, you know, the terminology of the solidarity payment, but maybe explain a little bit about what that is to people and just the importance of something like that for a club like yourself or others in, you know, a USL2 or, you know, an, an NPSL or a WPSL or something like that, that, you know, that could actually be a really important thing that if we were to reinvent soccer here in the U.S., yeah, absolutely. Um, so the solidarity payments and training compensation, it comes into play when uh, an amateur signs their first pro deal and uh, when a player is sold up until the age of 23 years old. Um, the, the All the teams that are clubs, all the clubs that have a role in that player's development, they get a percentage and it's a small percentage. Um, of, of that player's transfer fees and, and such. So for us, we've had 12 players sign pro in five seasons. Um, 
that's not including the 2018 season, really, and the 2019 season, where in 2018, we had an extremely young team. And the, for the 2020 pro, you know, kind of matriculation, we'll have players from our 2018 season signing pro contracts in 2019. Um, likewise, we just finished 2019 season in July. We have some guys that, I mean, we know that they're already kind of pro deals. Um, even let's just say it's five thousand dollars. You know, let's just say five thousand dollars from twelve players signing pro come back to our club. I mean, that's a major impact on our budget. I mean, everybody comes in here for free. They pay nothing. Um, we put them up for three months. We feed them for three months. Um, they get great treatment for three months, and, and then they go on. Um, it, it keeps clubs like us afloat across the world, really. Um, if, if you look at the breakdown of, I mean, I have it from uh, Accrington Stanley, I think. Uh, their, their top seven income streams for, as a club and players are the top two, I believe. You know, one of them is just sales in general, and another one is solidarity payments and training compensation. Uh, because they know like that's how their club is able to stay operating and able to stay pr producing players. And even more so it's how they exist for their community. And that's what clubs are. They're, they're for their communities and they benefit everybody in that community, whether it's the local pub, uh, you know, the fish and chip shop, uh, whatever it is, if it wasn't for that, football and club in those communities we don't know what the communities might might be um and that that's what we lose here um and that's part of the reason why we i mean we only have 70 professional clubs actually 70 clubs in our pyramid our u.s pyramid with division one two and three because we only have three in our pyramid we only have 70 clubs for our whole country of what over 323 325 million people and I, I, I truly believe you say, hey, um, solidarity payments training compensation is installed in the next two years that we'll see more and more develop from the soccer side and especially the first team side um, from clubs, youth clubs, whatever it is, that want to provide more opportunities for players and in, in their pathways and in, in their mobility upward. Well, the, uh, I mean, great pivot into just promotion relegation and why an open system, um, you know, not only would benefit the U.S. in terms of a footballing landscape, um, I think for us, it would be the great, um, you know, it would be the great domino to fall. But, you know, for where we are, especially on the men's side, right, with our national team and what we've been able to produce, I, I mean, I think that the quality on everything would just shoot up in absolutely love what you said and it's you know, I call it the the football romantic in me but local communities should have something that they want to support they should have that badge that they want to believe in they should have players that they get to know and you know I've told this story before but um the the club that my son is at right now that they've you know they have an NPSL team and that um this was one day before training and you know i would just be in dad that day i wasn't involved in the training i've just shown up and watching and it was just great to do that and he told me in the restroom he said dad he goes i want to play in the first team someday 
Well, this is a kid that's nine years old. That's and great. He, yeah, and he knows that. And, you know, we're, I mean, the three of us are obviously football crazy. So, you know, we're, we're probably in a, a smaller percentage maybe than the majority of folks in our country. But that was not only just a cool moment as a dad and as a coach, but just as a person who loves this game, you know, and just this game just opens up opportunities for people when it's, I mean, I call it the great connector of the world that, I mean, you put people from all around the world and you put a football there, they're going to find a common bond. Their style might look different, how they approach the game, the creativity, the decision-making might look different, but there's this quality that brings everybody together. And, um, you know, back to my question about just promotion relegation in terms of the, the openness of a system. I mean, what do you think that would do, right? I mean, you have an MLS club literally in your backyard probably. Um, but competition, at least in my mind, is a good thing. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, if we had promotion relegation in five years, let's say it's installed in five years, we would, we would be taking those steps right now. Um, we would have taken those steps two years ago. Um, I mean, our ownership's Dutch. They come from a system of promotion relegation. They believe in it. And it, it's something that, I mean, I, I go back and say, it, it's FC Cincinnati and what they've done is incredible. Um, but it's really hard to say, you know what? Like how, hard, like, how hard is it to believe that no professional soccer has existed in Cincinnati? I mean, it did before them. but w- Cincinnati should always have professional soccer play. It shouldn't have took FC Cincinnati to do what they did. It should have always had that opportunity. Um, And that's part of the reason why uh, the Ohio Valley Premier League started as well, because we believe that everybody needs that first team to play in. And how can we provide those opportunities for communities that have that aspiration of, we need something bigger and better, even though we can't buy into professional soccer in the U.S. right now because of a system, but we can provide our best possible system club and the first team that we can. And they're going to play at the highest level that they can participate in. Uh, and if somebody happens, if system changes, then they're right there already. If this, if the system doesn't change, well, then we're going to try to produce the best quality first team and let's, let's call them division one in the OVPL because that's what, it, that's what it's going to be. And these communities deserve it. I mean, Lexington, Kentucky has their first, let's call it a first team. They have their first first team in 20 years playing in 2020. It's been oh, since the oh. year 2000 that Lexington has had an elite men's team playing. That's crazy. And even, I mean, somewhat even crazier, maybe not, but Lexington, Kentucky has never had a, a, a representative in the U.S. Open Cup in the history of the Open Cup. The, the not-so-open cup in Lexington, <laughs> Kentucky. <right? laughs> so, like, I mean, and now because, you know, we, we got together, it, that's possible. And now we're hoping to bring this excitement into Lexington, who's never experienced it before. And we have other communities that we're in talks with that's doing the same. I mean, before uh, before we qualified, the Cincinnati Dutch Lions qualified for the Open Cup in 2016. We played in it. We qualified from 2015. We played in 2016. 
uh, even though we didn't play at home, we, we went to Indianapolis and played. Uh, that was the first time Cincinnati has had the Open Cup since the 60s, the 1960s. Um, so like we can provide that and we can provide it to any community that's that wants to bring it I mean you know Indiana Ohio Kentucky if 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 you want open cup if you want high level competition reach out to us in OVPL because we'll bring it to you people seem to forget that uh, soccer in this country began before World Cup 94 you know and that um, there's actually a, a really deep and rich Maybe that's something that, you know, Aaron, we explore in the future for the podcast, but um, like a U.S. soccer historian, this country actually has a really deep and rich football history. Um, I probably, I don't know if the majority of people would actually even know that. And they think it probably began in 94 or 96 when MLS started or whatever. So. Well, it was the 30th anniversary of Paul Caligari's goal against Trinidad and Tobago. That was, uh, gosh, last week, I think which got the U S into the 1990 world cup. So that was pretty, I remember where I was in grapevine, Texas, <laughs> watching that game. Oh my gosh. And Paul Caligiuri hits the half volley from 25 yards out and the goalkeeper couldn't see anything in the sun. And there they go. U S with a 21 year old Tony Miola in goal. I think he was 21 at the time. He was, he was young. That was amazing. Good memory. So, uh, Brandon, my, my son asked me this. Um, he had training tonight and uh, just got to be dad again and just kind of watch him do some futsal stuff. But he asked me uh, on the drive home, he said, Dad, he goes, are you going to ask that question that you usually ask? So it's good to know that he, he listens to the podcast. <laughs> but um, I, I've asked people in the past, you know, what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong when it comes to, to football or soccer in this country? And, you know, as a, as a guy that has seen a little bit of everything, what would you say? I think I'm a bit of a pessimist, so I'll, I'll, start, I'll stop with the pessimism right now. But um, what we're doing, I think there's a lot of people that do care. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that care about players, they care about the game. Um, they they want to push people forward. They want to push the game forward. And I think that's great. And that's probably, I mean, I, it's probably more people care now than ever before. And that, that may only continue to increase. Um, so I think that's, that's awesome. Um, I mean, they, they, they care about all kinds of things, whether it's rural soccer, whether it's college soccer, whether it's club soccer, um, you know, now it's the DA involved or, or ECNL involved. Um, there's a lot of people that just genuinely care about providing opportunities and outlets, inner city soccer, um, more power to the people, but those, what is it, soccer shots and stuff like that that go into preschools, uh, people care about that. I mean, that's hard for me to care about because I deal with three toddlers right now, and I just couldn't imagine trying to teach soccer to uh, a whole crowd of them um, when I, we just knock a ball around the house a little bit. So more power to those people that care about those kids. Um, so I think that's incredible of that and that really that's that's kind of what got me involved in soccer is people cared uh in a soccer desert of southeastern ohio uh that there isn't much there i mean but it all it took was some people caring about it and i caught on um i come from an extreme football family and 
football community. And I was uh, a bit of a black sheep that went the soccer route. Uh, and I haven't turned back since. Um, you know, what are we doing wrong? Um, I, I think some of that is I'm going I'm to push it back on the players. Uh, I think I think players need to do more themselves. Um, we talked about this when I coached in college, and it, it's not even just soccer. Um, when I coached in college the last four years, uh, uh, from 2013 to 2017, uh, we every semester we'd have a meeting with every athlete, all athletes in there, um, and and our athletic director, who's he's a historic historic swim coach, uh, Gary Kempf at the University of Kansas. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer, um, and he would lead it off and say, you know what, we don't have gym rats anymore. Uh, you see, we, every university, it doesn't matter what it is, some say, oh, we're, we don't have this or that. We're not, we're, we don't have the budgets that Division One or whoever has. But you know what they do have? They have a gym. They have a, a soccer field. They have baseball fields. They have batting cages. And they're largely empty outside of organized training and to me that just trickles on down because they they don't learn that in college they learn that before college Um, we spend too much time probably driving everywhere or flying places to compete Um, that's unnecessary we just need to play more we need to train more we need to spend more time on a ball if you're a baseball player you need to spend more time in a batting cage if you're a basketball player you need to spend more time shooting some hoops. Um, you know, Steve Nash, how do he get so good dribbling a tennis ball around uh, school? I, at least that's what they say. I don't know. I, I don't know Steve Nash. But uh, that's, that's what everybody said. Um, I, I think that's what a lot of it revolves around. I mean, I think we're all roughly the same generation. Uh, I can't speak for you guys, but I can speak for what I did, and I grew up in the middle of nowhere. Me and my friends, we, we went out and did things. Um, I didn't ever play organized football, but I played football with them. Uh, we shot hoops when we wanted to. We we played pickle or home run derby uh, when we wanted to. Uh, not much soccer was played because they weren't – I mean, some of them were soccer players, but, it, you know, it was just a recreational thing. We played soccer during soccer season. Um, and guess what? We still had time for our video games. We did it all, and we still had time for video games. Um, we didn't rely on coaches to make us better. We did it ourselves. Maybe that wasn't the mentality, but that's what we just did. We just went out and played sport, whatever it was. Can I, I want to ask a question on that because I, I, I deal with this as well on a daily basis is I feel like our players collegiately, they still struggle to find the motivation to train without structure and if there's not more than five people there if there's not a coach there if there's not a training session plan already devised if there's not cones out there if there's not mannequins out there you know it's very challenging for them to do it and and the way I I try to tackle all these issues is it's how how do we teach them intrinsically I guess that's the whole point is they have to decide to do it on their own, but how do we provide that environment for them? You know, cause we, I mean, listen, I provide that environment for them. Hey, you can go out to the field anytime you want. You can use the bag of balls. You can use all the cones. You can use all the mannequins. You can use whatever you want. And it's still, 
you know, it's still something that is not as easy for them to do is if there was a session plan already made. So, I mean, that's, that's the struggle right there, isn't it? The challenge. How do we absolutely foster absolutely. that environment? I think some, I, I don't know. I mean, it's tough to do, right? I mean, cause that's, that's one of those buzzwords in, in American soccer culture, right? Like how can we create a culture of free play of, of free play of just, going out and, and doing it as a passion instead of something that's necessarily organized, structured, forced on us. Um, and, and maybe I was a bit spoiled a little bit more when I was out in Kansas. Um, Cause our athletic director would also say, you know, like after our meeting, he was like, he, he never wanted to say it publicly, but it was just like the soccer players, the men's soccer players, we don't ever have to worry about this conversation with them because they're always playing. And you know, maybe that was some of the culture because I had, I had Latinos, uh, you know, from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, Venezuela, Colombia. Um, you know, I had a, a French guy, you know, like I, I had them from everywhere and that was just what they did. And, you know, some of our domestic guys, um, they fit right in with it as well. They, they never shied away from just going out and playing we got kicked off of public fields because they're like, Oh, you can't use this turf patch because you're scaring kids away. Well, it's free, right? I mean, it's, it's a, it's publicly funded. And they're like, well, uh, you can't do that still because other people have to use it. And it's just like, well, what can we do? You know, like, but building that culture of, of just going out and playing is tough, especially when they've never truly done it. Um, and, and, so really some of it comes back to can we get certain groups you know can we start with small groups of one or two three leaders that can help build that and say hey let's go do this maybe we plant a bug in their ear of some things that they can do um it, it it's it's not easy it's definitely not easy I'm, I'm, you know we we deal with it here on a on the daily i mean even USL too, you think these guys are extremely motivated and, and many of them are, but we give them the same, same opportunities. And, you know, it's amazing to see the guys that are going to be the, the last ones to show up are usually the first ones to leave as well. And you can see mentally that, you know, some guys have it for the next level and other guys, they don't quite understand it. Uh, if you're, if you're going to be that, same mentality wait till you're the the rookie at the pro level and you have that same mentality guess what's going to happen you're going to have a short career brandon i uh i love what you said and i'm not going to win any points over here with the uh the u.s federation um lord knows that i like to take my swings at them when i can but um i think if we had a living breathing u.s soccer federation that actually gave a damn about soccer in this country, everything that you guys have just spoke to would be high on their priority list. I just, I, I haven't experienced it, right? So I think that they could actually help set the agenda, help drive it home, help local communities like Cincinnati and, you know, Athens, Ohio, and, you know, wherever you are in Florida, Aaron, right now, and in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and everywhere else in this country, that, you know, every club, whether it be 
uh, an ECNL, a DA, uh, you know, a, a club that competes, you know, at a, at a sort of a, a elite or premier level, or whatever the hell they call it, or just a rec club that they could drive that home. And, you know, they're sitting on a ton of cash, use it. Um, and, you know, and part of it too, it's counterbalancing what is going on sociologically. I think this might get, um, you know, kind of glossed over a little bit, but I, I, everything you said, Brandon, of, yes, the three of us grew up in a generation where, you know, basically my parents said, just be home when the streetlights come on and go play and roam. And, you know, me and my uh, bike basically took me wherever we went. So we know that that's different now. Right. And when we see it, we actually kind of probably stop and pause and go, oh, my God, where's that kid's parents? <laughs> um, you know, my, I know that's happened for my wife and I at different times. Um, so knowing that and knowing that there's some really weird and bad people out there, how do we counterbalance that? Right. So, again, I think the Federation could show just some structure is, is, is what I'm getting at here of putting some things in place that they make a national, you know, every Friday is free play Friday. And here's where it's going to happen. Here's what you got to do. Show up. Coaches literally sit on their hands other than to provide some balls, maybe some cones and some goals the kids can play on. And then they just start playing um, or whatever it may be. But I know it's exactly what you said, whether it was hoops, whether it was home run derby in the backyard, you know, tackle football, um, ultimate Frisbee, whatever. I mean, just doing stupid stuff. <laughs> we were outside, we were active, and we were engaged in some sort of physical activity of some sort. And, you know, dreaded when we got to late August and knowing that we had to go back to school uh, <laughs> because our time outside would be significantly less. And that basically transformed what we did at recess. Uh, so obviously you can see I'm a little bit passionate about this topic, but uh, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think everything you said is, is spot on. So maybe uh, we'll have you back on. Well, we'll definitely want, we want to have you back on, but have you back on and we can maybe do a deeper dive on the ways that all three of us can fix the hot wreck that is U.S. soccer. In this country. So. <laughs> but that'd be fun. I mean, that, that's what it come down to. I mean, at the beginning of the year, I don't know if it was, if you saw it or not, but one of my goals this year was to do more. Um, and, you know, like I had that conversation with my wife, like I was just kind of struggling with, what I was doing, I know I, I was in a good, I'm in a good spot, you know, like Cincinnati Dutch Lions, it's a, everything about it is incredible, but I, I still think I can do more. I think as a club, we could do more. And, you know, one of those things that felt, kind of fell in my lap was S1 goalkeeping. And, you know, now I can provide goalkeepers with high quality, their pro level gloves that aren't breaking the bank. You know, growing up as a goalkeeper, if I wanted a good pair, I thought I had to spend a hundred dollars, hundred twenty dollars now, or hundred. I had a goalkeeper tell me I spent one hundred fifty dollars on a pair of gloves. I'm just like, like <laughs> it doesn't need to, be, especially since all the gloves are pretty much made at the same spot. Um, so that that's what I want to do. I mean, that was one of the first things. Hey, let's 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 save people money by making getting affordable gloves into the U.S. that are going to be quality. Um, so that was the first one. And then, you know, the last two months, uh, the Ohio Valley Premier League is, is I mean, it's literally been an 18-month project, uh, figuring out how we can get it going. And the last two months, it just absolutely just went full throttle on it. And, uh, you know, that to me, that's, that's kind of my next step of, like, how can I do more? And it's like, I can bring great soccer to communities that don't have it. Um, 
if anybody wants to, or I guess why a, uh, a youth club wants a next step, but they can't afford USL2 or NPSL or whatever it is, you should be able to do it here locally. And that's what this is about. You can do this locally and it doesn't take much. I mean, the budgets are very bare bones and you can have a great, great team and you can do it from 16 all the way up until you, you can't walk anymore. And you know, it's basically, we want, we want competitive teams in it and we want those just like your, your kids are. And my kids hopefully are eventually it. We want to be able to watch first teamers play and we want them to spend time with first teamers and we're all going, we're going to do it all locally. So that means I can play? Uh, you have to make the cut. Oh. <laughs> There's that I mean, you know, we, we do need a player manager in Athens to bring a team in. So, I mean, just. <laughs> oh, geez. Who do your uh, solidarity payments go to, Aaron? <laughs> yeah, uh, my pockets. <laughs> Great, Grapevine uh, Football yeah. Club, right? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we ain't gonna bring up North Texas since they drop men's soccer. No, exactly. Brandon, if uh, if people want to connect with you and and follow along with um, not only your your personal journey in the the football world, but also with the uh, the Cincinnati Dutch Lions, how can they connect with you guys? Yeah, personally, you can find me uh, Ponchak C D L F C P O N C H A K. And then CDLFC, uh, that's my Twitter and Instagram. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, and then S1 Goalkeeping, uh, S1GK USA. Uh, and then OVPL Soccer is OVPL Soccer. That's, that's for Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, and then the Cincinnati Dutch Lions is Cincinnati DLFC. That's uh, on Twitter and, and uh, Instagram. And we have YouTube as well, so we live stream all of our YouTube, our, all of our games on YouTube, home games. Um, so it, it's pretty fun. I mean, it we all of it. I mean, we're we're pretty active on all of them uh, in social media. So uh, feel free to reach out. Anything we can do to help, I can do to help. That's I, I'm always interested in helping more and do more. You know, four four things is not enough for me, I guess. So <laughs> we're all a little crazy in the fire football journey. So, uh, Brandon Ponchak, man, thank you so much for, uh, coming on the latest episode of the on the touchline podcast and uh, really enjoyable conversation. Want to have you back on sometime and, um, all the best to, to you and the, the folks at Cincinnati Dutch lions. Um, I, I know it's on my Christmas list. So <laughs> great. Great. I appreciate you guys. Keep, keep it up here. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm all caught up on, on the touchline. So, I'm ready for some more and uh, keep it up. All, all the coaches that's come in and, and if you haven't come on and you're just listening, keep up the good work. Uh, we need you. Uh, hopefully we'll come across each other and we'll, we'll enjoy some quality time on the pitch on the touchline too. <laughs> <laughs> well said, well said. My thanks to Brandon Ponchok for coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. And Brandon, I just really appreciate what you're doing for soccer in this country. And for the the guys and the gals that are um, 
you know, in the trenches and, and kind of grinding it out every single day, you have my respect and, and admiration. So tip of the cap to you and tip of the cap to the Cincinnati Dutch Lions. Uh, I hope to actually make it uh, just a few hours away to see you all play uh, sometime here in 2020. Before we wrap up shop, uh, please be sure to support this podcast in a number of different ways. So make sure that you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. That way you never miss a new episode of the show when it comes out on most Wednesdays and Saturdays. Two, if you're new here, go back and check out some of the archived episodes of the show. I think you'll like what you hear and uh, have a chance to give you a glimpse into what this show is all about. It's about making the football world and soccer world a little bit smaller for you, the listener. So connecting you to coaches, players, and influencers in the best game in the world. And if you listen to the show on Apple Podcast, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and a brief review about the show. And that helps more and more people in the footballing world find out about this podcast. All right, guys, I will talk to you all on Saturday of this week with a brand new episode. You can reach out to me at any time on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at SoccerCoachJB. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast, and I'm your host, Jason Broadwater.